Envision this. You're providing care to a 37-year-old male who is brought to the emergency department. He describes severe left flank pain and blood in his urine. It started when I got up this morning and it kept getting worse, he complains. It's off the wall now, he says. On exam, he cannot sit still. He paces the exam area while he talks to you. The physical exam is notable for left costal vertebral angle tenderness. His urine is grossly bloody and a non-contrast CT scan shows a 3mm stone at the urethral-pelvic junction. How can your patient's current condition be explained? Should he modify his diet to prevent a recurrence? Welcome to Audio Bricks. This is Ed Barnes breaking down renal stones in your ears. After completing this brick, you will be able to 1. Describe the types of renal stones, also known as nephrolithiasis, and list some of the risk factors. 2. Describe the clinical signs and symptoms of patients presenting with renal stones. 3. Discuss the pathophysiology of each of the different types of renal stones based upon the stone's composition. 4. Describe the initial lab workup, imaging, and pain management for the patients presenting with acute stones. And 5. Describe the evaluation, management, and prevention strategies for patients presenting with recurrent stones. Part 1. What are renal stones? The passage of renal stones is widely considered to be one of the most excruciatingly painful events suffered by patients, equaled only by labor, severe trauma, and migraine headaches. In this brick, we'll talk in detail about the traumatic presentation of renal stones, and we'll also explore their causes, composition, workup, and treatment. The formation of kidney stones, which are hard deposits created from solutes in the urinary tract, is called nephrolithiasis. The term stone comes from its appearance once it's passed into the urine. They appear like tiny rocks or stones. These stones can be anywhere in the urinary system but are predominantly found in the ureters. Besides being extremely painful, stones can cause many complications including obstruction of the kidneys, infection or pyelonephritis, and pus in the stagnant filtrate or pyonephritis, which may lead to urosepsis, acute kidney injury, and even renal or ureteral scarring with chronic kidney disease. Kidney stones are common, seen in 11% of men and 7% of women. Let's stop here for a quick quiz. Where are most kidney stones found? Most kidney stones are found in the ureters. Part 2. How do patients with renal stones present? The severe pain of kidney stones is unmistakable, but let's take a look at the common symptoms of a patient presenting with nephrolithiasis, as well as some of the more serious complications. Kidney stones may be asymptomatic until they begin obstructing the urinary flow. When they lodge in the kidney, ureter, or any other area in the urinary tract, they can cause trauma, pressure necrosis, and subsequent ulceration and bleeding all lead to pain. The classic presentation of kidney stones 
is renal colic, an acute onset of severe flank pain that is unilateral and radiates to the groin. This pain is dependent on the location of the stone and can change as it migrates along the urinary tract. If the stone obstructs higher up in the urinary tract at the upper ureteral or renal pelvis, flank pain is more likely. However, lower ureteral obstruction generally causes pain that radiates to the ipsilateral testicle or labium, classically described as loin-to-groin pain. There are additional symptoms as well. The pain is usually accompanied by hematuria, dysuria, and urinary urgency. The hematuria may be microscopic, which is not visible to the naked eye, or gross, which is visible bloody urine. Smaller stones are more symptomatic than larger stones, since they tend to pass into and obstruct the ureter, causing intense colic. Larger stones tend to remain unfelt in the renal pelvis because they cannot enter the ureters. Here's another quiz. Where is pain felt when a stone is located higher in the urinary tract? Stones that are located higher in the urinary tract will most likely cause pain in the flank. Part 3. What is the pathophysiology of each type of renal stone? Stones form for a mix of complex reasons and due to a variety of underlying causes. Let's go through some of the risk factors. Most patients with renal stones have no identifiable risk factor. Although episodes can often be precipitated by dehydration, which concentrates the urine. Some patients have underlying medical conditions such as recurrent infections, gout, hyperparathyroidism, and fatty malabsorption in the gut from bariatric surgery or inflammatory bowel disease. A medical history or family history of renal stone also increases the risk. Now, let's discuss the physiology of stone formation. Most kidney stones are mixtures of different crystal types with protein cores. The stones are categorized based on their primary composition, calcium phosphate or calcium oxalate, ammonium magnesium phosphate, also known as struvite, uric acid, or cysteine. The most commonly occurring stone type, or about 75%, is composed of calcium phosphate or oxalate. So, why do stones form? Crystals form in the urine mainly due to the process called supersaturation. Just like when you were a kid and experimented by making crystals on a string dipped in very sugary water. This supersaturation can be caused by too much of the stone forming substance, too little water or dehydration, or both. This is why patients with kidney stones should drink lots of fluids and avoid getting dehydrated. Stones also form in some patients because of the absence or decrease in molecules in the urine known to inhibit stone formation. These molecules include citrate, diphosphonate, glycosaminoglycans, magnesium, nephrocalcin, osteopontin, pyrophosphate, and tamhosphal proteins. Also, an excess of any of the following molecules in the urine can cause stones, and we will now take these one by one and explain how they occur. 
calcium oxalate or phosphate, struvite, uric acid, or cysteine. Calcium oxalate or phosphate stones, as I mentioned already, are the most common type. Mechanisms for formation include high urine calcium, high urine oxalate, and low urine citrate. In 50% of cases, calcium oxalate phosphate stones are associated with high levels of calcium in the urine or hypercalciuria. And causes include 1. An idiopathic hypercalciuria which is the most common. Here, the patient has a normal blood calcium level, but the renal excretion of calcium is high, and no defined cause for the increased excretion of calcium can be identified. Possible mechanisms include high gut calcium reabsorption, decreased renal calcium reabsorption, or increased bone reabsorption. Some cases may also be genetic. Or two, Hyperparathyroidism can also lead to hypercalcemia and hypercalciuria due to increased release of calcium from the bone. These patients may also have hyperoxyuria. Fatty malabsorption in the gut may lead to high oxalate reabsorption, and the high serum oxalate is filtered into the tubules, hyperoxyuria, and forms calcium oxalate stones. Why would fat in the gut cause oxalate reabsorption, you may be asking yourself? Well, this can happen because the excess gut fat binds to gut calcium, which prevents it from binding to gut oxalate, for example, from spinach or potatoes. The free oxalate then gets absorbed from the colon into the circulation. This process is termed enteric hyperoxyuria and can occur in patients with Crohn's disease, especially those who have undergone extensive bowel resection for strictures, namely the terminal ileum. Less commonly, oxalate stones can be caused by genetic errors of metabolism. For example, alanine glyoxalate aminotransferase deficiency and glyoxalate reductase hydropyruvate reductase deficiency. They are autosomal recessive and can cause both calcium oxalate stones and diffuse calcium deposits in the kidneys. Calcium stones can also be caused by low urine citrate. Usually, citrate in your urine helps inhibit formation of calcium stones by binding to calcium and making it more soluble. Low levels of urine citrate result in an increased risk of stone formation. Low urine citrate is seen in some patients with high-protein diets and some patients with chronic acidosis, for example, in chronic diarrhea or distal renal tubular acidosis, or type 1 RTA. In these cases, the kidneys fail to secrete hydrogen ions, urine is more alkaline, and the calcium phosphate stones are more likely to precipitate. Medullary sponge kidney is a rare congenital disorder where defects in pumps that acidify the urine can lead to hypercalciuria and hypocitraturia. Recurrent infections and urinary stasis within the ultracollecting system can further promote stone formation. Let's stop for a quiz. What might cause stones in the patients with hyperparathyroidism? 
stones in patients with hyperparathyroidism results from the release of calcium from the bone into the blood, causing hypercalcemia and subsequent hypercalciuria. Next, let's discuss struvite stones. Struvite stones, also called infection stones, are the second most common stone type. They are formed primarily by salts of magnesium, ammonium, and phosphate. They form due to urease-positive bacterial urinary tract infections that convert urea to ammonia. For example, some Proteus and Staphylococcus species. The most common organism associated with formation of struvite stones is Proteus mirabilis. When the stones grow large within the pelvis, they form what are called staghorn colliculi, named because they look like the antlers of a stag. These stones are found in alkaline urine with a pH greater than 7. Once formed, staghorn colliculi can harbor chronic infection that is poorly accessible to antibiotics. The persistent growth of the urea-splitting organisms fosters further stone growth, leading to a vicious cycle of infection and stone enlargement. In uric acid stones, the urine is usually acidic with a pH less than 5.5. But uric acid stones can be seen with or without high serum uric acid levels. Hyperuricemia, as seen in gout and diseases involving rapid cell turnover and high purine turnover states like in leukemia and chemotherapy, predisposes patients to the formation of uric acid stones. Excess intake of red meat can also lead to hyperuricemia and increased stone formation. Cysteine stones are rare and are often seen in children with genetic disorder, cystinuria. The stones are caused by excess cysteine in the urine due to poor reabsorption by the proximal tubule. There is commonly acidic urine due to a defect in the amino acid transporter, leading to increased cysteine, ornithine, lysine, and arginine in the urine. A cool mnemonic for this is COLA. Medications can also cause kidney stones. Some, like triamterine or some antiviral drugs like indinavir, can directly precipitate in the urine and become obstructing stones. Others can cause changes into the tubular fluid that promote stone formation. The diuretic acetazolamide and the seizure drug topiramate cause a proximal renal tubular acidosis with alkaline urine. Corticosteroids like prednisone can increase urine calcium and uric acid levels. Discontinuing the medication reduces the stone formation. Complications of renal stones can vary, but they can become a nidus for infection and cause pyelonephritis, kidney infection, or lower urinary tract infection. Renal stones can also cause obstruction of the flow of urine from the kidneys to the urethra, leading to obstructive post-renal acute kidney injury, or, if the obstruction is persistent, chronic kidney disease. This usually occurs when obstruction occurs in the ureters, or at the uretopelvic junction, and leads to hydronephrosis, which is a swelling of the renal collecting system and can be seen on ultrasound examination. Let's stop for a quiz before moving on. Why does renal tubular acidosis, or RTA, cause kidney stones? Distal RTA is associated with low urine citrate, 
a stone inhibitor, as well as high urine pH, which promotes stone formation. Part 4. How do we diagnose and manage patients with acute renal stones? The diagnosis and treatment of renal stones varies depending on the acuity of the patient's presentation. We will talk about this in two parts, starting with the patient arriving in the emergency department or clinic with an undiagnosed stone and acute pain. Then we will talk about how to approach the more stable patient, identify the cause, and prevent stone formation. Labs and radiographic imaging are used to diagnose renal stones in patients presenting with unilateral colicky flank pain, nausea, vomiting, and hematuria. The first step is to diagnose the kidney stone and ensure there is not another cause of the flank pain, such as pyelonephritis. While the symptoms of a patient with acute stone might be similar, the stone type can sometimes be identified by clinical clues from the history and lab evaluation. Patients with acute renal stones will almost always have hematuria with normal RBCs seen on urinalysis. Using a microscope to look for crystals in the urine can help with the diagnosis. Each stone type has its own characteristic crystal shape. Calcium phosphate usually precipitates as a powder in the urine. However, when calcium phosphate crystals form, they are wedge-shaped or form rosette-like prisms. Crystals of calcium oxalate stones resemble the backs of envelopes or dumbbells. Struvite stones have coffin lid-like crystals. Uric acid stone crystals are rhomboid or rosette-shaped. And cysteine stone crystals are hexagonal. Let's stop for another quiz. Which type of stone has a crystal shaped like a dumbbell or the back of an envelope? Calcium oxalate stones are shaped like dumbbells or the back of an envelope. Serum studies can be done both for diagnosis and to assess for complications. Elevated serum calcium or uric acid can be a clue to calcium or uric acid stones. Elevated serum creatinine can suggest obstructive loss of renal function or post-renal acute kidney injury. Note that this would only happen in patients with bilateral stones or obstruction of a single functioning kidney. Normally, obstruction of a single kidney does not lead to a rise in creatinine since the normal kidney can compensate by hyperfiltering. This would need to be confirmed by renal imaging. Radiologic studies are useful to better characterize renal stones, specifically their size, location, and whether they are obstructing a kidney. If they are, you will see hydronephrosis or swelling of the renal collecting system behind the obstructing stone. Non-contrast computed tomography, or CT, of the abdomen and pelvis is the best test. It uses low radiation dose and has high diagnostic accuracy. CT scanning can identify stone size, number, and location, mostly in the sites of ureteric narrowing, ureteropelvic junction, pelvic brim, or ureterovesical junction. The CT scan will reveal a bright white, hyperdense structure in the ureter of the kidney. 
In pregnant patients and children, ultrasound can be used for the diagnosis and is a preferred study because of the lack of radiation. However, many stones cannot be seen by ultrasound. X-ray was a common method previously used to diagnose stones, but is no longer used as much because of the lack of sensitivity. Also, some stones, like uric acid, are radiolucent or invisible on x-ray. Let's pause for a quiz. What is the best first test for renal stones? The best first test for renal stones is a non-contrast computed tomography, or CT. As you might imagine, patients with renal stones have severe pain, which is the first thing to address. Patients with acute presentation of renal stones need good pain control. Patients need good hydration, including intravenous hydration, if they're not eating well due to pain. Stones less than 5 millimeters in diameter usually pass spontaneously without intervention. If they don't, an alpha blocker, like tamsulosin, can be used to help expel the stone from the urinary system. What if the painful obstructing stone does not pass spontaneously, either because of its large size or because it's stuck in the proximal ureter? That's when we need surgical intervention by a urologist. If there is renal obstruction and or infection in a febrile patient, the obstruction should be relieved immediately. This kind of scenario is typically seen in a febrile patient who has hematuria and renal colic. A renal ultrasound is often done first to detect obstruction, or hydronephrosis, which is an obstructed renal collecting system. It will appear as a dilated collecting system and calyces on ultrasound, or increased dark space because fluid appears black on ultrasound. An obstruction can be relieved in two ways. One, nephrostomy which is when there is a percutaneous placement of a drainage tube into the renal collecting system, and two, retrograde placement of a ureteral stent using ureteroscopy, using a scope that is inserted up through the urethra, bladder, and ureter. Ureteral stents are put in place to help the broken stones pass through the ureteral vesicle junction and relieve the obstruction. Once the patient is stable, stones can be broken apart by lithotripsy. An extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy, also known as ESWL, shockwaves from outside the patient's body are used to break up the stones. That way, the body can more readily pass the stones spontaneously. In ureteroscopic lithotripsy, an endoscope is threaded through the bladder into the ureters, an electrohydraulic or laser probe is used to break up the stone. Percutaneous nephrolithotomy is also a procedure that involves making a small opening through the skin and removing the stones with a nephroscope. It is used mostly for larger stones greater than 2 centimeters, like the staghorn colliculi or cysteine stones. Here's another quiz. What treatment method is recommended for stones greater than 2 centimeters? Percutaneous nephrolithotomy is used for stones greater than 2 centimeters. Part 5. 
How do we diagnose and manage patients with chronic renal stones? After we deal with the acute painful stone and relieve complications like obstructions, we turn to the underlying causes, especially in patients who have recurrent stones. Diagnosing chronic renal stones. Outpatient stone evaluation includes stone analysis, urine studies, and serum studies. The biochemical composition of a stone can reveal its type. Patients can urinate into a fine sieve, collect any gravelly material, and bring it in for analysis. This is not pretty, but it's effective and the best way to confirm the type of stone. You may also consider evaluating a patient's urine chemistry. Biochemical analysis of the urine is not always done after a single stone episode, but is usually done when there are recurrent stones or evidence of stone enlargement. The following urine tests are done on a timed urine collection. Calcium is increased in hypercalciuric patients with calcium phosphate or oxalate stones. Phosphate is increased in calcium phosphate stones. Oxalate is found in higher levels in the urine in calcium oxalate stones. Uric acid is elevated in uric acid stones. And citrate is decreased in some calcium stones. The urine pH is also helpful. An acidic urine, pH less than 5.5, suggests uric acid or cysteine stones while a basic urine with the pH greater than 7 suggests calcium phosphate or struvite stones. So, how do we manage a patient with chronic renal stones? And how can we prevent formation of kidney stones in patients who are prone to recurrent stone formation? There are dietary and medical options. The first step is to make some dietary modifications, the most important of which is increase in fluid intake. Patients should drink enough fluids so that the daily urine output is a minimum of 2 to 3 liters per day. They should be counseled to measure urine output at home periodically. In some patients with recurrent calcium oxalate stones and hypercalciuria, restricted intake of animal protein and sodium combined with a normal calcium intake can lower the incidence of stone formation. Calcium supplements should be stopped in those with calcium stones and hypercalciuria. You might also consider prescribing medications. Each type of stone has specific drug regimen that can help prevent future recurrences. For patients who have had calcium stones, the use of a thiazide diuretic may be a benefit for patients with high urine calcium. Thiazides lead to an increased tubular reabsorption of calcium. This would then decrease the concentration of calcium in the urine and therefore decrease the chance of stone formation. If patients have calcium stones with low urine citrate levels, potassium citrate can improve the state of the hypocitraturia or low citrate in the urine. To prevent struvite stones, aggressive treatment and prevention of urinary tract infections are key to avoiding a future occurrence. Patients with uric acid stones benefit from urine alkalinization with potassium citrate or bicarbonate. 
Those with high urine uric acid levels who are resistant to these treatments may benefit from allopurinol to help decrease uric acid formation. Lastly, cysteine stones can be prevented by using drugs like tyropronin or penicillamine, which make cysteine more soluble. Alkalizing the urine may also be helpful. As we wrap up, let's spend some time reviewing the different types of stones, their frequency, etiology, characteristics, and prevention and treatment. First, the calcium oxalate or calcium phosphate stone comprises 75% of all renal stones. They're usually caused by idiopathic hypercalciuria, primary hyperparathyroidism, or enteric oxaluria. Their urinary crystals are shaped like envelopes or dumbbells and should expect to see an elevated urine pH specifically for calcium phosphate stones. Management includes reduction of dietary sodium and animal protein intake or thiazides to reduce the hypercalciuria. Next, struvite or magnesium ammonium phosphate, also known as triple phosphate stones, make up of about 15% of all renal stones. They are associated with chronic infections due to urease-producing organisms. They can lead to staghorn colliculi, Their urinary crystals look like coffin lids, and they also have an elevated urinary pH. Management includes treatment of any urinary infection and possible stone removal. Next, the uric acid stones is associated with high uric acid production and make up about 6% of stone formers. Their crystals are rhomboid or rosette-shaped and you should expect to find a low urine pH, usually less than 5.5. Management includes dietary purine restriction and alkalinization of the urine. Finally, cysteine stones are rare and occur in about 2% of the renal stone patients. They are usually due to a defect in renal transport of certain amino acids like cysteine, ornithine, lysine, and arginine. Remember that mnemonic, COLA. Their crystals are hexagonal, and their urinary pH is low. Management includes reduction in dietary sodium, tyropronin or penicillamine, and alkalinization of the urine. Let's try one final quiz. What are the treatment options to prevent recurring stones? Patients with recurrent stones can be treated with dietary modifications and medications, each of which is dependent on the type of stone that is predominant. And that brings us to the end of our discussion on renal stones. Now, let's recap to see if we've completed our goals. First, can you describe three risk factors for renal stones? Dehydration, personal or family history of renal stones, or recurrent urinary infections are all risk factors in the development of renal stones. Next, what is the main clinical symptom that aids with the diagnosis of renal stones? Flank pain that radiates to the groin is the main clinical symptom in patients presenting with renal stones. 
They may also present with hematuria, dysuria, or urinary urgency. Next, are you able to name three pathophysiologic factors that contribute to stone formation in patients? Supersaturation, decreased stone inhibitors like citrate, diphosphonate, glycosaminoglycans, and magnesium, or excess of stone-forming molecules like calcium phosphate, oxalate, uric acid, or cysteine are all factors that contribute to stone formation. Next, can you name the best imaging study used to diagnose renal stones? Non-contrast CT is still the best radiologic option when diagnosing renal stones. And finally, can you name three prevention strategies that are used to prevent recurrent renal stones in patients? Large volume water intake, low sodium, and restriction of annual protein all help to decrease recurrent renal stone for patients. And that's it. Armed with their newfound knowledge on renal stones, let's get back to the patient from the beginning of this episode. You're caring for a 37-year-old male who presented with severe left-sided flank pain and blood in his urine. His urine is grossly bloody and a non-contrast CT scan shows a 3-millimeter stone at the uretopelvic junction. How can your patient's current condition be explained? Should he modify his diet to prevent recurrence? You tell your patient that he has a small kidney stone. Based on its size, the stone should pass spontaneously, and you will give him IV fluids and medication to help with this pain, and ask him to sieve his urine for stones. Shortly after initiating this treatment, he reports marked improvement. When you visit a few hours later, he smiles and says, Perfect timing. I just passed the stone when I peed. Look how tiny it is. Before he is discharged, you tell your patient that the most important thing he can do to prevent future stones is to increase his fluid intake. You send the stone for chemical analysis. And that's it for our show. Make sure you like and subscribe if you like what you hear. And remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full Brick experience online at www.usmole-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So, go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time.